Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In early December 1777, Joseph Plum Martin and his comrades in the Continental Army sat down to feast upon a Thanksgiving meal mandated by the Second Continental Congress. To add something extraordinary to our present stock of provisions, our country, ever mindful of its suffering army, wrote Martin decades later, opened her sympathizing heart so wide upon this occasion as to give us something to make the world stare. And what do you think it was, dear reader? Guess. You cannot guess, be you as much of a Yankee as you will. I will tell you, it gave each and every man a half a gill of rice and a tablespoonful of vinegar. Martin's faux banquet was a result not of tight-fistedness, but of bankruptcy and what my guest Ricardo Herrera describes as the slow-moving, staggering debacle that was its supply and transportation system. If it's true that amateur study tactics and professional study logistics, then Herrera's new book, Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778, is definitely for professionals, but there is much in it for others to learn from as well. Ricardo A. Herrera is Professor of Military History at the School of Advanced Military Studies at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views that he expresses here are not those of SAMS or the Department of Defense. Rick Herrera, welcome to Historically Thinking. Happy to be here, Al. Thank you. So let's start. I'm going to try. We're going to try to keep this at like an hour the way we usually do, but I'm going to resist the temptation to completely nerd out and indulge in what I'm sure is our mutual man crush on Nathaniel Green. We'll reserve that, reserve that for the end. Absolutely. I mean, whoever, who, who doesn't stay Nathaniel Green and not end up with a, with a crush? Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I, I, since since I grad know. school. But, oh, by the yeah, way, I, nothing that I say reflects any of the views of the U.S. government or the U.S. Army or any of its satrapies. They are solely my own. So, therefore, I hope I'm covered from future forms of punishment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I did mention the entire U.S. government, just Sam. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's everyone. Uh, I, uh, everybody. They're not everybody. responsible you, for me. This is completely Rick Herrera sounding off. That's right. Without right. without cigars or bourbon. Yeah. Well, okay. Oh, well. It'll be even better. It'll be even better that way. <laughs> All right. So let's let's uh, let's let's set the uh, scene. Uh, December seventeen seventy seven. Joseph Martin is actually at Gulf Mills, which uh, he hasn't even gotten to Valley Forge yet. But what's the state of the Cotton Army as they're shivering in, at Gulf Mills, which is now a scenic spot on the Schuylkill Expressway, where I've yeah. been stopped in traffic many times. <laughs> yeah, the uh, you know d- d- we, we go back to December seventeen seventy seven. You know, early on, Washington had decided to offer battle to uh, Sir William Howe. He forms defenses at White Marsh. And he's saying, come on, come at me one last time. 
Howe decides, I think I might. He marches out. He sees the defenses. There's a little skirmishing. Howe thinks, I think I might not. And they retire back to Philadelphia. Washington then, and I won't go, all, go through all the, the machinations, but Washington ultimately decides, and this is based upon strictly military concerns, it's based upon political concerns. And so one thing that, that we have to keep in mind is that warfare is always political. And yes, I'm drawing upon the dead Prussian, Karl von Clausewitz. So all war is always political. So if you ever hear anybody say, oh, I wish the politicians would keep out, hmm, wonder twice. In any case, Washington understands the close connection and the interrelationship between politics and warfare, what he's doing. And after bouncing it off of his generals in a series of councils of war, in which he had actually been contemplating, and so had some of his generals, launching another offensive, this time to drive the British out of Philadelphia, he decides, I can't do it. It's not a good idea. My soldiers are in a really poor shape. Granted, they're much better off than they had been the year before when they'd launched the attacks at Trenton and Princeton. Um, this is now an army that's got some seasoning, that's got some combat experience, but it's still in poor shape. Washington ultimately decides to take position in the Great Valley, which, uh, as it was termed, and so he sets up position at Valley Forge. The strength of the army uh, really fluctuated. From looking at the strength reports in December '77, they were they were at about they were just shy of fifteen thousand soldiers. They rise up to just over twenty-two thousand in June of 1778. Now that sounds great until you actually look at the numbers a little more closely. In terms of fit for duty, no more than about a third, sometimes as high as a whopping thirty-eight percent of the army was actually fit for duty. Most of the soldiers either poorly uniformed, including no shoes, uh, perhaps no breeches, poorly armed, unarmed, sick, detached duty, you never, you really never know. And so in fact, when the army that, um, that well, when Washington decides to dispatch his foragers in February, the effective strength of the army is just over 6,200 soldiers. You know, it, it is an amazing number to think about. And you know, to, if, if I can extrapolate a little bit, you've got in this age, in the 18th century, in terms of casualties, it's something like one to eight. So for every soldier who is killed or dies of wounds on the battlefield, um, that's one another eight are going to die from disease. And so the natural environment, the disease regime was a major player. And that's, I think, is something that we really need to get into much more deeply in our military histories. So it's in poor shape. Washington was serious when he wrote uh, to, to, some, to a handful of people. He tries to keep, he, try, he tends to play things close to his chest, vest, that the army's on the verge of collapse. Do I disperse? Do I concentrate? Here are the advantages and disadvantages of all of these things. Ultimately, he does make that decision to, to, to set up that Valley Forge. And when he does that, he's looking at it from, as I said, political and military considerations. This is very much a strategic view of the world. 
And while Washington, in my view, was not the best tactician, he was given to often rather overly complex plans. As a strategist, Washington gets it. He understands mm -hmm. that the survival of the Continental Army means the survival of the revolution. So some of his generals, like Johann de Kalb, mm -hmm. uh, question this decision. Why Valley Forge? It's both uh, White Marshes considerably closer into Philadelphia, uh, but then he also might have gone to, say, Reading, which is the site of a, a, either then or right at, subsequently a major magazine supply depot, and certainly in the midst of untouched countryside. So why not remain at White Marsh? Why not remain at Reading? Valley Forge seems to be basically lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Why not spit it out? Yeah, a great, great question. And this is something that Washington wrestles with, and as do his, uh, his subordinate uh, generals. Um, and perhaps even some of his insubordinate generals. But uh, Washington it looks at it uh, in, from the point of view that he needed to maintain proximity to the British garrison in Philadelphia because he understood that the contest for loyalty of the population relied upon his ability, in part, to challenge the British army for control in southeast Pennsylvania. He understood that if he could not gain the affections of the people, at least he could try and avoid annoying them. So he's, wa he's walking a very tight, uh, very tight rope. He understood also that the British desperately needed supplies from Philadelphia's backcountry, surrounding areas. Most supplies for the, uh, for the British still coming over from the mother country. And I've, I've got, I can talk about that later if you like, mm -hmm. but, um, what Washington sees is that food, animals, wagons, hay, fodder, all of it, all of these are the stuff of war as well. And so by going out, by taking position at Valley Forge, he establishes a, a physical presence that announces to the British, the Continental Army is here. We're not surrendering the fight. We're close enough to strike and threaten you. We're close enough to threaten the countryside between us as we go out and forage and get the supplies before you can. So Washington understands uh, what today in the army we'd call sustainment, but um, all the stuff of feeding and supplying an army, he understands those as an element of making war, of waging war. If I can get it, he thinks, I can deprive my enemy from getting it and thereby harm him. So Valley Forge fills out a number of, of admirable things. Um, you know, when you look at the location of Valley Forge itself, it's really a pretty good place. White Marsh, you've got a linear defense. And so it runs, it runs roughly, basically east to west, a chain of hills. You've got great open ground that's much lower than it uh, facing to the south. But Valley Forge, what you've got is, is more of a plateau that's open. You've got the Schuylkill River that's along the northern edge. You've got Valley Creek. You've got Mount Joy and Mount Misery. And so with the countryside facing southward toward Philadelphia, with the road networks that are there, Washington understands that he can cover the major axes of advance. In other words, the roads that would allow the British to approach him. He's also got good defensible terrain. And so he's, uh, he has the readouts, the star readout built, 
a series of entrenchments built on the hillsides. He has, he has his engineers lay out what we would call today a defense in depth. So he's got all of this set up. It's a great position. And in fact, um, one of the things that I refer to in, in the book is that we should probably envision it as the 18th century equivalent of a forward operating base. And so Washington uses Valley Forge as a place from which to project power. He's sending his army out on patrols. This is a combat army. It's a field army. It's not the stuff that many of us grew up with, uh, you know, continental shivering, or if we remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, soldiers popping up out of deep snow just to blow up the ice cream truck. <laughs> we, because for one thing, it's a pretty mild winter compared to some of them that they, they have. All the problems are, as it were, self-inflicted. They, they were. And, and the, the winter is... Is is this? You know, it takes place in uh, in something uh, known as the, uh, the 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 Little Ice Age, you know, and the, and the Little Ice Age will run up into the early 18th century, and it's and this is climate change that's really going on. And, uh, too often, I think, when people think of climate change, uh, it's oh, why are we getting these warm spells? That can't be climate change. Well, climate change is the big picture, so we can't confuse weather, which is the more focused. Uh, piece compared to climate, which is the much larger picture. So within, when, you, when you have a climatic change, um, you've, you have these incredible variations, f- huge freeze-thaw cycles, violent storms, incredible droughts, incredible deluges of water, any number of things. And so all of this was taking place. And so during this Valley Forge winter, which, as you noted, much more mild than, say, Morristown, during Valley Forge, they've got a freeze-thaw rain cycle. And so you'll, you'll read accounts, one day the snow is ankle deep. The next day they're riding, well, the, the weather is rather mild. Uh, then you'll see, well, the, the, the creeks have risen, the roads are flooded. So the weather is incredibly variable. But happily, it was not as, as vicious, as cold as St. Morristown had been and would be. You are... You write provocatively that uh, Republican virtue subverted the Continental Army. Mm-hmm. How did it do that? Well, the Continental Congress, and this, you know, I have to ca- paint with a broad brush. There's a view by by many in the Congress, by many of the lead of the of people who are thinking and reading and writing, that liberty, and they had a habit of of gendering liberty and gendering power. So liberty is feminine power masculine. And so liberty, the people's liberty, had to be protected against all grasping power. And what better exemplar of power than an army? And so what the Continental Congress does in order to protect the people's liberties, and that can be political, it can be economic, you name it, they purposely set about to make it as difficult as possible for power to trammel upon the people's rights, the people's liberties. Hence, they put in a number of, frankly, well, almost unworkable restrictions upon the commissariat and the quartermaster general's departments. Yet- we should talk about how they're organized because this is the the very organization is to, to further this defense of liberty against power. And of course, it leads to absolute incoherence. Absolutely. When you compare it to, say, when you say to like Marlborough's army, mm-hmm. Uh, or something like that, or other precedents in that century. This is not this is not 
based on military precedent. It's based upon basic kind of checks and balances. Oh, yeah. and these are <clears throat> these are actually I would I would call these massive checks and imbalances. Yes, that's right. That's right. You know, you, because you've got the the you, and and it depends on which uh, which year it is. It, it's at different points. You know, and I, and I first have to say that the the, the whole system works as shambolically as humanly possible. The, um, when it works <laughs> at times, yeah. mostly yeah. kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of <laughs> <laughs> the, um, what, they, so uh, purchase the purchasing agents, for example, were required to give bond. So pay $5,000. Oh, and then by the way, um, you need to go out purchasing agent and buy things on your own personal credit. Oh, really? I've got to go give you money to say that I'm going to be a good boy. And then I have to go and advance my own personal credit to purchase goods. And then Congress, you're going to reimburse me. That doesn't make much sense because guess what? I'm now impoverished. And so you've got a lot of men who, uh, and, you know, and yes, they're all men, a lot of men who would otherwise have happily gone and worked on behalf of the Continental Army, trying to feed it, trying to supply it, who just see that it's impossible unless they are willing to destroy their own lives. And I don't want to say destroy their own comfort, but literally uh, become destitute in the cause of liberty. Where's the justice in that? And so, and and also the, the Congress at different times will limit the ability of the quartermaster general or the commissary general to even have authority over his own subordinates. They're often competing against state purchasing agents. So you've got this competition that drives up prices. You've got issues of inflation. I mean, as early as June 75, 1775, Congress had authorized printing $2 million. Another six months, let's print up $6 million because three is better than one. By 1778, the rate of exchange, uh, paper to specie, was five to one, and it's only going to get worse. You know, one of the major problems, not the sole one, was the unwillingness of the Congress and the unwillingness of the states to levy any taxes. So without taxation to make money slightly dearer, you have rampant inflation. So the money's worthless because people are afraid or unwilling to tax and to recall the money, making the supply a little bit uh, more limited, thereby raising the value of the money. So by 1778, it, um, it, it, it's just, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Please. So just, just a couple of things. I've always been confused by this, some of these distinctions. So there's a commissary general, there's a quartermaster general, there's a, there's a clothier general too. I mean, all these things are separate. So what's the difference? A clothier general, one assumes that was in charge of uniforms correct, uh, and, and, cloth- and clothing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so educated. And but what's the difference between a, a commissary general and a quartermaster general? Sure, Commis- uh, uh, sh- long, long answer short. The commissary general responsible for feeding the soldiers, and that would include also uh, the alcohol rations, beer, whiskey, rum. Quartermaster general has a, had a much more expansive role, and this comes from much earlier. You'd mentioned Marlborough, and so the quartermaster general responsible for establishing quarters. So for sending out an advance party to lay out encampments, but at the same time also looking at things like 
getting a hold of wagons, teams, um, laborers, doing contracts for that, and a variety of other things. In many ways, the quartermaster general of an army is, was in the 18th century was really the right-hand man of the commanding general. And Washington's right-hand man is unfortunately a guy named Stumpy, at least until he can appoint Nathaniel Green. And Green sure as heck doesn't want the job. You know, as we all know, mm-hmm. Green writes, who ever heard of a quartermaster general in history? <laughs> but then you've, you've also got, as you said, the clothier general. You've got um, commissary generals for the purchase of hides. And so they're handling uh, the tanning of hides in order to make shoes, cartridge boxes, and other things. And they, too, are competing with states purchasing agents, trying to get the same stuff as the states are purchasing for their own state line, their own militias, and sometimes for the Continentals. So it's a, it's a confused mess of, of intersecting lines of authority, responsibility, and supply. That is the kindest thing that you can say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are some numbers? What, what, I, I love to get this. This is when you start to realize it what a soldier eats and even multiply it by the very, I should say the very small numbers Mm -hmm. of the continental army, even that is becomes immense and it makes your like mind start to, uh, your eyes start to bug as you think about how this applies to the civil war, let alone the the two world wars. Oh my, it's, I mean, I, I think I I refer to the, the, uh, the army as, as a a conspicuous machine of consumption and it must've been uh, astounding to people. So each soldier according to regulations. And those are more often met in the breach than not. Each soldier on a daily uh, a daily ration, one pound of bread, another pound of meat, pint of milk, a quart of beer, one ounce of rice, six ounces of peas or beans, and just under an ounce of butter or their equivalents. Officers, of course, depending on their rank, were authorized additional rations, and this is as a component of their allowances. It helps them maintain servants, but also for senior officers, there's a custom. They're expected to host some subordinate officers at dinner, and that's part of the military culture. Dan Morgan always complains about not having enough to do that. Absolutely. And so um, the figures are pretty incomplete, but um, what we do have it's something like 1.7 million pounds of food per month that the army needs. In the last week of February alone, the army required 15,903 daily rations. These things had to be transported uh, from the magazines, the mills, and other sites. The um, number of... and the, the problem is, one of the many problems is there isn't any transportation. Right. There are almost no wagons to be had. I mean, just to point out the obvious milk spoils, mm-hmm. uh, but also what's less obvious to us now is beer spoils. Absolutely. Uh, that's why that's why rum and, and whiskey are great because they mm-hmm. don't spoil. Um, but all these things that are perishable. Uh, and so how many, how, how much does a wagon take? Sure. So if, if rough guesstimate, yeah, um, roughly eight. A wagon holds roughly eight barrels. Each barrel holds about one hundred and forty rations. So it would take about one hundred and thirteen or more wagons daily just to supply the army. Grief. 
they're not to be had. There is nothing to be had. And then um, the problem comes is that these wagons are pulled by horses, and they horses have to be fed. Eat, eat eat more than people, and and you know be given lots of love and affection too. Oh. I guess so. That's that's a, a huge problem. It is. It is. And, and you the and and looking at the at what um, period manuals period um, uh, works or uh, authors are writing. Typical daily ration, um, in, at least in the winter, uh, for European armies, anywhere from 15 to 18 pounds of hay, another four to seven pounds of straw, or four mm-hmm. to seven pounds of oats, nine to 11 pounds of hay, four to seven of straw, maybe 20 to 22 of hay alone. It all depends on the author. But these animals are eating a lot. They need a lot. And so you can only go so far. One of the, uh, you know, one of the other problems, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah. One of the things reading Green's letters for when he's quartermaster general, you know, 1778 and 80, 80, it always amazed me is how also leather, the tack, the harnessing, Mm -hmm. he is, he is crazy for harness stuff and for the leather to make it because it wears out quickly under the load of, of, of horses pulling, you know, those 800 pounds, uh, it's going to wear out. So where do you get it? How do you have it made? It's a huge problem for a quartermaster. Absolutely. And, and you think about, you know, just caring for the leather when it's, uh, when, yeah. when, when you get the tack exposed to the weather elements, you've got, uh, when it gets wet, it gets dry. That, that affects the, uh, the flexibility of the leather, its ability to sustain any weight when you're pulling or uh, putting any uh, weight on it, all those things go into it. It's it's an amazing feat uh, that the, that they get through this. That any early modern army does it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so foraging. Uh, how should we understand foraging as separate from sort of the supply that we've just been talking about? Sure. Because yeah. it's kind of it's like, but not really the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If with a properly functioning commissariat and quartermaster general's office, you would be getting your supplies delivered. Uh, the British Army's rule of thumb was to have about six months' worth of stuff on hand. And very rarely did the British Army ever meet that expectation uh, during the American War. So you would, draw, you would have your stuff in warehouses, magazines, the reality, though, is that with foraging, that's actually meant to be an expedient. That's something that an army on the move does, spread out your soldiers, um, and they're kind of like locusts. They're going through the countryside. Now, when you want to maintain good relations, you issue uh, receipts or you pay the people. And there are, they, there are established sets of pay for different types of food, different conditions of horses and what have you, uh, cattle, you name it. So you issue, you, you, you either pay the people or you issue a receipt, let them know, go to camp such and such a day or within so many weeks, whatever the determination is, in order to get paid by the paymaster. And so this is going out and sending teams of soldiers far and wide. Now, if you're the British Army in Philadelphia, you're sending out nothing less than a battalion because you are afraid of getting attacked. And at times, the British Army will send upwards of half its strength to go on these huge foraging expeditions. And they're, they're going out as far as they can and getting as much as they can. 
Do they pay in specie? Uh, the British were paying in specie, yes. So that makes it much Which, more attractive. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to resist that. It is. That, it is a, the fact in that in a place that for two hundred years has been has had no cash, uh, has been working on credit and IOUs mm-hmm. as the basis of the economy. It's hard to resist gold and silver. It is, and you've also got the added incentive of having a bunch of red coated dudes with muskets and bayonets. That is also it's, uh, insisting that you take their money. Yes, uh, yeah, that, please. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. If you insist. Uh-huh. But and so <laughs> and so, the, so and, you know. And, if you're a farmer or a merchant and this happens to you, you don't care how much you're being compensated. This is your private property. How mm-hmm. dare you? You're mm-hmm. compensating me. I'm not going to get my money's worth. And so there, there's a, nobody likes to see armies. In fact, uh, uh, if, if I were to live in the air in, during that age, I would pray that no army ever came near me because that right. just means destruction, theft, you name it, all sorts of bad behavior. You can be an ardent patriot, or heck, I, I always like to, you can be an ardent Confederate living in, say, northern Albemarle County or, or Orange County. When the Army of Northern Virginia comes, goodbye to all your fence posts, your fencing, which, you know, I'm building a fence right now. Mm-hmm. It's a very short fence. It's 50 feet long. God help you if you have to do it. It's a mile of posts and rails. And then within a day, it's all going to be gone and burnt. Absolutely. Let alone, let alone your chickens, uh, your cow. Uh, your teenage daughter. Oh yes. Um, you know all these things are in jeopardy they uh, are. when even even your your own quote unquote army comes to your farm. Oh yeah, these uh, our armies uh, armies were, were, were terrifying engines of destruction, and I don't just mean on yeah. the battlefield. You wanted them to stay the hell away from you as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I, you see these uh, stories, you know, in the coming out of Ukraine. Um, of the, of, uh, and they say, so Russian soldiers living in the basement with the family, you know, uh, and, uh, and they threaten And to my mind, all I can think of is the 18th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, this is exactly the sort of interaction that would have happened in the 18th century in some way. Oh yeah. And it's, and, and I know we're not talking about the Russian army, but it has not had a good reputation for good conduct for centuries. Right. And at least a, it is a consistent one when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the British Army at the time had that kind of reputation as well, rightly or wrongly. Certain some regiments did and more than others. And it they depended did. very much on the commander. It, they did. And uh, Howe really worked hard at trying to enforce discipline uh, in Philadelphia. Um, the, you, there, within his orderly book, you see records of, uh, of executions, of punishments mm-hmm. delivered out to soldiers, but also civilians. But there's no way that he can effectively enforce it because some of his officers turned a blind eye. Some of the non-commissioned mm-hmm. officers, the sergeants, turn a blind eye. And you read accounts of these um, you know, uh, from different uh, officers' journals talking about the hauls that they've made and what they've gotten away with. You see, uh, you, re- you see what, uh, for example, the Pembertons in uh, Philadelphia, what uh, British soldiers, they particularly blame the light horse. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing it's either the 16th or 17th light dragoons. What they've done, uh, also Hessian troops, he, he fingers in terms of um, digging up gardens, uh, stealing crops and what have you, uh, even cordwood. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, especially cordwood. Oh, oh my yeah. God. 
I mean, that's like, that's a lot of labor that you would otherwise have to do. I mean, to have some seasoned cordwood, that would be like the first necessity of any, I would think as a soldier in the 18th century, that's what I'm looking for is cordwood first and then chicken later. Um, And the, uh, we don't have time to really delve into the British in Philadelphia, but I always stuck struck by Tom McGuire's uh, notes that at the, after the battle of Fort Mifflin, members of the guards regiments are digging up bodies of Continental Army soldiers at Fort Mifflin after they've taken over the fort looking for shoes, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's turnabout. I mean, that's that's not the way you usually think of things working, but they had a pretty bad supply situation by the end of November, at the beginning of December. Yeah, they they, they did. They did. In fact, um, I think the, uh, the estimates um, from 1777 through the close of 1778, um, the British dispatched 124 victuallers, so ships uh, dedicated or vessels rather dedicated to carrying food and other transports the average weight was about um, 220 tons in terms of what they were carrying they estimated that it took something like 667 pounds of food a year to feed a soldier in america that's a third of a ton (laughs) <laughs> and so, and and I there's in you know in Pierce Mackesy's uh, War for America, which you know over fifty years later I think is still the best book on British strategy during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes to the conclusion uh, that this is the largest muscle movement, not his words, of Great Britain until its wars in the twentieth century in terms of yeah. projecting power overseas. This is a Herculean task for the British. And they're never their army's just not large enough, and so they can mm-hmm. rarely advance uh, beyond the littoral. They can rarely advance mm-hmm. into the Piedmont, um, and and establish themselves for very long. So, the focus of the book, through the action, as it were, is on this grand forage. And when does that occur? It's in 1778. Is that do we does this begin? Well, the British have that grand forage into uh, Derby. Mm-hmm. Uh, area of Chester County and in, in around Christmas. But then when did the American efforts to basically save the Continental Army from implosion, when do they begin? Yeah, that that that, uh, that begins in uh, in uh, mid mid February of 1778. Washington receives intelligence that the British are about to launch their own grand forage, and that's just a term for a large foraging expedition. Mm-hmm. And s- what he determines is that I've got to do this and do it now. One, my army's on the verge of collapse. No kidding. It really is going to fall apart, guys. Two, this gives me a chance to deny the British what they want. And Washington's rather explicit in his orders. So he sends out Nathaniel Green, you know, who's, you know, we already talked about being Nathaniel Green fanboys. So mm-hmm. Green. Guilty. Yep, yep. I am, I am. Green, t- Green um, uh, gets an. I'll, I'll, I'll be very generous and call it a division. It's an ad hoc command. <laughs> I, I'm being very generous, but it, you know that's the size of a modern battalion today. But yeah. Green gets his ad hoc division, massive air quotes, um, and it's from a variety of units. I've been able to piece together some of the officers, most of the senior officers, uh, most of or a large number rather of the company grade officers. So the lieutenants and the captains, some of the field grade officers, as I said, um, maybe a, a, ha- a very small handful of the uh, NCOs and uh, enlisted men, but not very many. I wish I could find more. But in any case, these 1,400 or so guys 
march out of camp. His second in command is Anthony Wayne. And they march southward. Green doesn't think this, that this thing is going to amount to anything. But he's a good soldier. He salutes, says, we're going to do what the boss wants. Goes out, and he sets to foraging with a vengeance. At one point, some of his men capture a couple of uh, farmers trying to bring goods into Philadelphia. He orders them uh, triced up, and they get 100 lashes each on their backs. There's another part where he writes that... Um, I hear their cries, but I harden my heart like Pharaoh. You know, so Green has gone biblical on these people. And he's giving out receipts. But when he finds that people are starting to hide things, he says, to heck with it. He probably says to hell with it. But Green decides, you know what? You're not even going to get a receipt. If you're hiding things, I'm seizing it. And the best you're going to get is a thank you so much for your unwilling contribution to continental defense. Bye bye, and his guys yeah, take is, it. This is a revolutionary army acting like a revolutionary army. Oh yeah, and and Washington and 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 his senior officers are very we're very much aware of the sanctity of private property, but we're talking about survival. And if you want to give us a hard time, fine, we'll give it back to you. The army's survival is more important. We're willing to take the risk of alienating you. They'd rather not but they're willing to do it. And so, you know, after a couple of weeks of that, Green cuts uh, Anthony Wayne loose. He works with John Barry. And this is some great interaction between what remains of the Continental Navy. Before we get there, sure, what's the, he, where is he's, well, the British have already been in Chester County. So where in Chester County does he go? Just Chester, and I guess, is there a Delaware County at the time? I can't remember. I think it's all, but this is all of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Correct. Basically from what we now think of as the, the city of Philadelphia all the way down to the Delaware border. Right, right. And so, and Green doesn't even go as far as the Delaware border, but he's basically operating in, Ch in Chester County. Mm -hmm. And what does he get, by the way? I mean, do you, do you have numbers on what he managed to bring back? Sorry I, to ask. Oh, gosh. That, no, it, um, unfortunately, there aren't, the records are not that good. Or yeah. the, the, the records I could find are not that good. I would hope that there's something out there. But um, Green does write back to Henry Knox that he thinks he made a pretty good haul of it. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a handful of numbers, unfortunately, they're not coming to mind in terms mm -hmm. of head of cattle that he sends back and what have you. Um, you know, Anthony so, Wayne, he, he ends up, the, the numbers vary, but uh, several hundred head of cattle, swine, yeah. among other things that he's able to get as he's going through South Jersey. So he, let's get to Anthony Wayne and John Barry, sure. dynamic duo uh, yes. in this in this instance. Uh, talk about your, talk about uh, what's the joint, jointness. Yeah. This, is the, this is an exercise in jointness. That, yeah, what, um, we would, what we would today call jointness, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so Barry's got what remains of the Continental Navy, which ain't much. And so he and Wayne get together, and it's great. Here are two guys who were are, who are incredibly aggressive, and they just seem to sink. They got along well from reading the, the, uh, the letters exchanged between them. Wayne asks him, hey, I'd like you to do a diversion. You know, first, I'd like you to ferry all my, tr my troops across, and uh, he's, he's got a few hundred ferry them across to Salem, and I'm going to link up with the New Jersey militia uh, under uh, Colonel Ellis, soon to be Brigadier General Ellis. Would you do me a favor, dear, cap dear Captain, one each? 
would you mind setting fire to the marsh hay? And it's like, wait a second. Every man, every boy is a pyromaniac at heart. Give him matches and something to burn. John Barry is having a good time. But well, I, just wanna, I just want to interject here. Uh, I grew up on the marsh okay. uh, along the Delaware Bay. And, uh, you know, in, in quaint rural communities like my own, one form of enjoyment, even in the era of television, is going down to watch the marsh burn when a local arsonist or pyromaniac or someone who just wants to make a better habitat for muskrats sure. lights it on fire. Um, and it's spectacular. I mean, it's like watching gasoline go up. Oh, it's, I'd love to uh, see that. It, it is incredible. It's it's red. It's glowing. Uh, and then this massive black oily smoke goes up like a bomb hit. And so the idea of, of Barry going along underneath the, the bridge, which now bears his name, basically it's that mm-hmm. same swath of territory. It's kind of, I guess it's why it's named after yeah. him really is, uh, and lighting all the marsh hay, which is extremely good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Up and up until we got rid of horses, marsh hay is the best because it's oh, got yeah. its own salt. It's got salt in it. Horses love it. Yeah. Um, and uh, lighting all those haystacks and lighting the probably the marshes on fire themselves. It must have been an epic sight. And for Philadelphia, it did look like an enormous black line of thunderstorms, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. So so he's okay. Good. I'm glad you confirmed. People, we're still having a good time setting things on fire. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, but not also, that I ever engage in that myself. Oh, no, I no, saw I, I, I saw it. I saw it. I saw it done. Yes, I have heard about mm-hmm. things like that. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and and this ties in really nicely with Barry's other activities that are taking place on the river, which is attacking British shipping. He's, mm-hmm. And he Barry understands. Don't go after warships. One, he can't because all he's got is whaleboats, and he doesn't have very good, very large guns on them. So go after the, the soft, chewy parts, the British merchant ships and the victuallers. They're not very well armed. You can attack them and you can engage in your piratical spirit, if you will. And so yeah, all he's, of this. He's engaging in a regular naval warfare in a, in a way is. that's underappreciated. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it, it's asymmetric in, in the extreme. Yeah. And so Barry is able to distract to some extent the Royal Navy, which is under the command of uh, a- Captain Andrew Snape Hammond, who's a really fine officer. He's got the squadron based out of uh, Philadelphia. But this is a tough thing to do, uh, to catch Barry, who's much more mobile. So Hammond has got to use galleys and, and smaller craft to try and chase him down, but he never actually, he rarely gets close enough to catch Barry. Barry's always a step ahead. The beauty of that is there are plenty of places to hide there are. in the marsh. Yep. And uh, and to catch him, he has to send boats of the equivalent size. So if they do meet Barry, he has the chance of of winning. He does. He does. So the, the two of them work, uh, as I said, hand in glove. And Wayne uh, also works quite well with the New Jersey militia. He's able to work his way through and uh, northward, eventually collecting... Um, you know, rough guesstimate, a few hundred head of cattle and swine, um, all of which, which is not a lot tied over. Yeah. A lot. That's probably more precise. I mean, yeah, but it's not a couple hundred head. When you think about the requirements of a pound of beef, uh, estimating that there's about maybe 300, uh, pounds of meat. Well, they'll use everything, but cattle are smaller than say it's oh, yeah. four or 500 pounds a piece. Oh, not, um, not even that. In fact, um, yeah. I think, um, you know, Average swine, when it's dressed, it's only 125 pounds, even though they weigh in around 175 pounds. Uh, Local cattle weighing in 
about 770 pounds, uh, giving you maybe 450 pounds of dressed beef. Yeah. So he, they're know, going to so, use everything, including oh, yeah. the squeal. Oh, the yeah. hides are going to are very valuable, as we've already touched on, for everything oh, yeah. that they use. Um, so let's uh, talk about friend of the podcast, Harry Lee. Yes. Uh, yes. And and what he does, because that's a very interesting. It, it doesn't fit in with his um, his concept and execution of the operation, as you put it in good uh, army bureaucraties. Uh, it doesn't um, it doesn't comport with sort of the image of light horse Harry of crazy Harry Lee. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very different, and he, he's sort of a uh, an archetype of civil military relations during a revolutionary war. He is, and Lee, you know, in, in short, Lee gets it. Lee, um, you know, young guy, uh, he's part of the, the Tidewater uh, uh, aristocracy, the gentry of Virginia. He takes Washington's um, orders to heart. He maintains an account book, which I was really fortunate enough to come across, kept in the Hollingsworth papers. Um, in how do you, Okay, in New Jersey, is mm. it pronounced properly Gloucester or is it Gloucester? Gloucester. Okay, thank you. I've heard people say Gloucester. It's like, no. Nah. In any case, they, Gloucester They must count. have been drunk. Okay. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Burning Marsh hay, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. But um, yeah, the, in the Gloucester County Historical Society is a co- is the original copy of Hollingsworth's account book for Harry Lee's part of the expedition. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go through this. And you've got a careful accounting of everybody that Lee visits, the valuations, the so- how many hands the horses are. You know who the wagon, who's driving each wagon, the wagon masters. And That's Princeton graduates for you, man. They keep careful accounts. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I mean, there, there has to be something to that. It's Hollingsworth. I think it's really Hollingsworth who's, you know, who's, okay. who's in a, a, a businessman. Um, yeah. But uh, I think one of the things that was, you know, and I, that I found really most touching uh, and humanizing maybe that's the wrong word, were the names of the enslaved drivers, yeah. uh, wagon wagon drivers. So Joseph, Cuff, Samuel, and others. So here are the unfree mm-hmm. supporting the cause of liberty, as it were. Mm-hmm. But um, to get back to Lee, he's going through, and he was exacting. He gets copies of the tax rolls for the various hundreds, so now he knows who, roughly who's got what property, names, and he starts to send out small parties under junior officers and under non-commissioned officers. He's working with the Delaware militia. He's sending out purchasing agents along with him. Lee gets this stuff, and he is a master at it. And he's anything but the crazed egotist that we see him develop into in later life. Mm-hmm. Maybe that um, was a little harsh. Yeah, no, it's uh, that. That's probably it's kind of true. Um, what's the uh, loyalist what response to this? Because I mean, I'm I'm always I've spent some time in the looking in Salem and Gloucester County, and also in Delaware. In 1778, you've got these inquisitions, which are essentially grand juries. Um, they're trying to formalize treason trials, which are still a little up in the air because they're rebelling governments. 
um, but they're looking into the behavior of loyalists who were supporting the British, both uh, during and then after the foray. So people hiding stuff from Wayne, they come up on trial in, in, in inquisitions during the summer of 1778. You see the same thing in Delaware as well. And it's interesting to me, you know, uh, my grand theory of American loyalism in many ways is that it's a, a lot like uh, a kitchen I had in an apartment in, in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, long ago before it became nice, uh, where you flick the lights on, all the cockroaches would run away <laughs> and hide. Um, and, you know, the basically the presence of the Continental Army um, or the British Army are like flicking that light switch. Um, it, loyalist activity increases, decreases based upon the presence of the British Army and vice versa. And so you see that um, along the littoral of Delaware, Hammond and the HMS Roebuck have been ubiquitous mm -hmm. for most of the war up and down the Delmarva coast. So you always see people dealing with him and selling stuff to him and then later getting tried for it. Um, and you see the same thing happening with the British. You know, people send a lot of boats to Philadelphia full of provisions. So that's one loyalist response. You know, what's some, what are the responses to the continental foraging? Yeah. Um, you know, I think... <clears throat> when we, you know, for the loyalists, uh, Lee comments on the large numbers of deserters hiding out next to, near the rivers. Yeah. Um, and he uses kind of a catch-all phrase that both the, uh, the, the British and the Americans used, uh, and that's disaffected. And mm -hmm. that's meant, and that encompasses either those who are opposed to you or those mm -hmm. who just want to be left alone. So, so he refers to the disaffected. What we see, though, is rather than how taking the opportunity to strike at Wash at Valley Forge while this large uh, contingent of troops is out in the field, or even taking the opportunity simply to strike at Green's column. You see loyalist outfits such as Hovenden's uh, 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 light dragoons. You also get uh, light infantry companies uh, of loyalists recruited from the Philadelphia area, mm -hmm. and they start to push into the back country, the the the, grant, the land between Valley Forge and Philadelphia, and they go on their own campaign of persecution against the mm -hmm. local Whigs, driving them out. Same thing happens, interestingly, in Gloucester County. I mean, you've got the West Jersey Volunteers that will yes. eventually form at Billingsport. Uh, you mentioned Hugh Cal Calperthwaite, who mm -hmm. is in a neighborhood full of Whigs, yes. uh, Pitt Pittsgrove Township, but he becomes a leader of the Loyalists. Uh, and it's interesting, you see this in the Inquisition records, people hiding out in cedar thickets while the militia are patrolling the roads. The, the night is full of people moving back and forth. Oh, yeah. uh, and they're, they're, they're going out from Billingsport, they're raiding Swedesboro, they're raiding, you know, uh, militia officers who are here, there and everywhere. There's, this activity is, is, goes on all the time, like a beehive that's being kicked repeatedly. It is, it is. And it's, you know, and you, you see the, uh, for the, the local militias, and you, I, I think your, your analogy about the cockroaches, okay, it, it's colorful, but it, it's a good one. But you see with, uh, with the presence of British forces, this in spirits, in the, war, in the phrase of the day, mm -hmm. the, the loyalists to come out and, and, uh, and rise up, if you will, and say, yeah, I'll take my oath in public. We'll form our, our, uh, mm -hmm. our loyalist militia company or battalion. But once the regulars leave, 
the loyalists melt away or they will march away because they realize that it's the rebel militia that is most committed to its cause. And so the, the, the rebel militias really serve as these political enforcers. They maintain political order. Yeah. And if there, if, if big brother Redcoat isn't anywhere nearby, the rebel militia is going to make sure that you pay for your transgressions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. And this is the same. It's what's always interesting is you see the same sort of, it's a sociological phenomenon going on in the Philadelphia area for one brief period that you see in the Carolinas for like two years. Absolutely. But, uh, but there it has time to build up and get worse. Uh, and 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 more venom gets can you know t- had, had, can, had exacerbated you exactly. know, by, with some boneheaded actions by various people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you let's start to to tie this up sure. uh, as an army that foraged. Um, the Continental Army, you says, it held something of an existential middle ground. It was engaging in support of government. So. How can an army maintain its that existential middle ground when it's basically a, a sort of officially looting people? Only with the greatest delicacy. Washington understands that, well, well, ideally, Washington would like to gain adherence to the cause, supporters, He realizes that foraging, that impressing people's property, even compensating them, is going to alienate them. So trying to do his best to not give or give reasons for people to have active overt offense and thereby to take active resistance against the Continentals or against the state's government or the Continental Congress's authority. So trying to lessen the bad, if you will, to tamp it down as much as possible, to try and be as respectful as you can, all the while recognizing that you're going to be angering and harming people. And so does it always work? No, no. But he enjoins his officers to try and be as respectful as possible and you see in his letters when he writes back to the Congress as well as to the, the to states governors, he does not want he did not want to exercise the full extent of the powers that were given to him. He tried to hold back as much as possible. Uh, one that that respect for private property is understanding of how that forms into the basis for white American society, property a voice, politics, economics, all of those things, but also to try and avoid alienating people by not destroying, dam- damaging, or seizing their property. So he's, he's walking a, a very, very fine line throughout the entirety of the war. And he can't help it because of the nature of the, supp- the supply system, mm-hmm. but also the nature of warfare itself. Armies arrive, armies destroy, even if it's not enemy soldiers. Let's um, take a couple steps back. Uh, one, you know, what you're describing is Washington is a political general. 
And uh, that is a term of opprobrium often for, I think, civilians and I think for some hopefully stupid junior officers. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that in a republic, you better hope all your generals are political generals. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and Washington is the archetype of that political general. So you're saying absolutely. You, you see where I'm going with this. What do you mean when you say absolutely? I, by, by political general, let me t- say what it isn't. And, yeah. I, and I, I get the opprobrium piece, you know, with the, perhaps the, the one that we, we think of uh, most uh, or who comes to mind most easily, someone like Nathaniel Prentice Banks in the, in the American Civil War, or also sure. known as Nothing Positive Banks, or perhaps uh, Beast Butler, Benjamin Franklin yeah. Butler, and there are others. You know. And McClernand, and there's a whole long, oh, long, God, long yeah. list of them. Yeah. 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 Or we mean by, we also mean the, the three star who has excelled his entire career by kissing up and biting downwards, as, sure. as they say in Oxford of Rhodes Scholars. Sure. And so we get, so here's, by, by political general and in, in a positive sense, this is a, this is a general who understands the nature of the political workings and understands that politics, and you know, we sometimes like to pretty it up by saying policy, that somehow elevates it. It's politics. Get over mm-hmm. it, boys and girls. That politics courses throughout the making of war. That war is a political act. Yes, I'm channeling my Clausewitz, but mm-hmm. it, you can't escape it. War without politics, without these meanings, these these goals that one wishes to attain, is simply war for war's sake. Washington understands, understood rather that the war was being waged for a particular political purpose. That's American political independence. I won't say freedom because that's wrong. If you're white in in America in 1775, you're among the freest people in the Western world. This is about political independence. Uh, People trying to chart their own way, however stumblingly they do it. Washington grasps that. He understands fully the political piece of his making war, which is one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why he learns to fight only when he has to fight, where he wants to fight, and when he chooses to fight. This doesn't mean he's not a risk taker. He certainly was. But he understands that the preservation of the Continental Army was one of the keys to attaining American independence. That so long as this army that is reflective, I would argue, of the people from which it was raised, so long as it existed, so too would resistance. And it serves as a hard core around which resistance might gather and the British cannot tamp that out. He's waging a war of attrition. All he has to do is avoid losing. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely significant that um, uh, we're talking with David Stewart about George Washington's politician, which is oddly enough uh, a neglected area of his career. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he was a, he was an elected, 
he was elected for, to more offices for far longer than he ever was. Or even in a way, he was elected as general. Too. Oh, sure. I mean, he was selected. He was a member of Congress at the time. Uh, they picked a congressman to be a general. Absolutely. And, uh, but and, and he, he was a his... practical politician for a very long time. And it's significant that, like, so was Nathaniel Green, or he served in the assembly, John Sullivan. Mm-hmm. We can go, Anthony Wayne, did he have some kind of role? He did. We can go on the list of people. They had all been politicians at some point in their life. And this meant civil military relations. They didn't have to read a book on it. No, they, they lived it. They lived it. They were going to defer to the civil authority that they had once been Absolutely. and would be again. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I, as I say, you know, I, I mentioned before, whenever I, um, and I, I always, I regularly enjoin my students, you know, we like oh, about, you know, you know, politicians interfering with war. Well, yeah, but generals sometimes interfere with war too. Mm-hmm. But war is, is fundamentally a political act understand that. And my students are all political actors. I don't mean that they're there stumping for some party. Rather, they are agents of the Republic. They serve the United States. And they, in whatever service they're doing, whatever mission they're doing, be it training or deployment, you name it, those are all ultimately related to political goals, policy goals, strategy all those things, you can't divorce one from the other. But at the basis of it, it's all logistics. Is it, does everything eventually come back to logistics? I mean, is it really beneath everything else? Because the more I read, I'm not a military historian, but when you start to deal with things like the tack for horses and how much a wagon can haul, it all comes back to that. You know, logistics is nowhere near as sexy as, say, as say, you know, Kesselschlacht, the German Alf called Frank's in battle. Alf Frank, whatever the... Oh, yeah, Alf Frank's tactic, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another argument that I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> we, that was a, that refers to something before we started recording Boys and Girls. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's... Just, it, you know, just, you know, um, jokingly, that, that gives you the schlitz to do what you want to do. You know, one, yeah. you know, we, we often, I think in popular histories, and this is what sells, is, the, is battle histories. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the Umpty Ump Regiment goes to seize Hill X while the Umpty uh, Ump Regiment turns right, you, however you want, however it is. But it's the ability to sustain and support those forces to enable them to project power that really allows one to wage war. And if I can if I can give you a, you know, fast forward to 1942. Sure. When you look at, at, um, at the battles for Guadalcanal, the, the, the Imperial Japanese Navy, superb sailors, superb fighters. These guys were great at gunnery, torpedoes, air, you name it. These guys were top notch. I just heard how much like airtime that a, a, a Imperial Japanese Navy pilot had. How Absolutely. many hours they had. It's incredible the amount of training oh, that they did. Absolutely. Well, because of the, and this is a cultural piece, because of their, you know, and, and forgive me if, if I, if I hope I'm not wrong on this, but as I understand it, their perversion of the, the Bushido code, it was far more honorable, far better to attack a ship of the line, a warship, than it was to go after a merchantman or a transport. 
That makes them, in my estimation, amateurs. The U.S. Navy, the submarine commanders in particular, they had what I'll generously call this piratical spirit. They understood, okay, battleships, yeah, that looks sexy. What's going to really hurt the enemy? Oh, drowning hundreds or thousands of his soldiers at sea, destroying his food stocks and starving his soldiers on those islands. It may not be sexy, but it's effective. And so at Guadalcanal, the Japanese had more than one uh, um, opportunity to go after American transports that were undefended or poorly defended, and they blew it. They decided to go after the hard stuff rather than going after the soft, chewy parts that make the hard stuff work. So, yeah, logistics matter, and we got to incorporate that in our understanding. And it seems to me, too, just in this book, um, logistics. So uh, I, I'm probably going to push a whole bunch of buttons on Rick Herrera's central processing unit <laughs> right now. Um, so since the 70s, we've got this thing called war and culture, and which is interesting. I mean, I, I know this by like, you know, secretly reading the, the Society for Military History journal in the stacks when no one was looking like there was <laughs> pornography or something like that. That's right. Um, you don't want to be tainted by us. No, I know. And, but <laughs> uh, but uh, as early as, what was it, 1975, Dennis Showalter wrote a modest plea for drum and drums and trumpets, I think. And mm-hmm. it's hilarious that it's like, uh, that's still a... Th- so war and culture is the, the, the sort of thing which has sort of completely subsumed the um, military history. And, and in many ways, I think that's good, although I, I, I think that... But one th- logistics also is another way of connecting the rest of society, the rest of history, quote unquote, to the military history, to the battlefield, to the experience of the soldier, to the experience of the civilian. We've just, we've just listed, there's innumerable ways then that this connects us to the rest of, you know, that military history is not over here, weirdos, former armor officers, you know, teaching, you know, uh, who are, who are doing this stuff, (laughs) but it's actually, it's about social history. And it's about cultural history. It's hell. It's about gender history. We just we mentioned enslaved people on the wagons taking the stuff back. All these things are related. Everything. Out. It is. It is. And it's okay. Do we have to have drum and trumpet? You bet. But you have to ask the so what about it. Mm-hmm. How does it tie into some of these other pieces? Am I saying that you give over? most of your word count on on the 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 operational stuff to the the cultural social blah 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 stuff no but you have to at least acknowledge it and so i i tend to view military history as having incredibly wide parameters my first book was a cultural and intellectual history of soldiering in the united states from 1775 through 1861 it's and 1,200 so, pages long. <laughs> <laughs> I came no. in under the word count. It got That's <laughs> all that matters. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, if you, if you look at um, the University of Kansas, Beth Bailey, a wonderful, wonderful historian, she's doing a great job with, uh, with her center that, that's looking at, at, uh, at, at war, society, uh, culture, and it, 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 it has it casts an incredibly broad net, so encompassing traditional military history, but also military history from the cultural, the war and society aspects, 
And yes, logistics ties into this. You know, you know, a good friend of mine, Tony Carlson, who uh, just uh, co-authored along with Wayne Lee, David Silby, and David Preston, the other face of battle. They now owe me a glass of bourbon uh, for having. Uh, said they this. already already been on the podcast. Oh, good, good. Make sure you remind them that I pimp them. Yeah, I, I will. Um, we'll put a link but, in the show notes. And that's right. That too. <laughs> but uh, Tony's uh, grandma, uh, paternal grandmother, she'd worked on a B twenty nine assembly plant, I believe, in Kansas. And so, yeah, her grandmother didn't wear a uniform, but she's part of that war effort. She's a piece of that, and that is all a part of the broader thing that we understand as military history. And so I, I tend to look at it in a much more expansive view. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's limited by the imagination. Do we need the drum and trumpet? Absolutely. Can't do without it. That matters. Can we ignore, however, all the other pieces? Only at our own peril. Because mm -hmm. if, we're ap if, we're aimed at, if we're aiming at creating a more historically minded public, a more historically minded readership, mm -hmm. then we've got to teach our readers how we think much more broadly, deeply, um, humbly, and convey that to them. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, we all, we ultimately, we're all studying history, forgive me for going philosophical a bit, but we all study history, I think, we try to understand who and what and why and how we were in order to understand who and what and why and how we are. And we constantly reinterrogate the same old sources to ask new questions because every age has new questions. And that includes military history with its broad left and right limits. Let's just finish up by rethinking Valley Forge. You've already referred to Valley Forge's uh, FOB Valley Forge. Um, mm -hmm. I've had, Junior officers say to me, "Oh yeah, Fort Mifflin. It's like an outpost. Outpost Mifflin. You know, it's yeah, kind combat of outpost. There you go. A combat outpost. It's what they they looked at it from the perspective of someone who had been defending the wire in Afghanistan, and they said, oh yeah, this looks very familiar. It's a very small group of men. Uh, tremendous. You know, lots of people outside. You have to hold on. Um, you say uh, it. I think when they originally started Valley Forge, it was like National Shrine, and mm -hmm. the the importance was on suffering." You know, I'm not saying that modern culture um, modern culture has a thing about victims and about suffering. I, I think that's non-controversial to say, uh, uh, I, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but you are very insistent that we should not think of them as passive victims of passive victims. Mm -hmm. They were active in what they did. They were they were they were not just shivering by the fire or standing guard post. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think that, and that, and that goes back even before the 20th century. Uh, but you know, this, this, what endowing Valley Forge among other places, you know, making them sacred places as it were, you know, and Ed Linenthal's done a great book on that America's mm -hmm. sacred places, looking at battlefields, places like the little Bighorn, the Alamo, uh, mm -hmm. other, other ones. And I and I, it that image. May, it's almost Manichaean with this black and white view. Here, are the British enjoying all the comforts of Philadelphia, drinking, mm -hmm. gambling, whoring, 
having a good right. time. They're the you know then that that represents uh, corruption, venality, you name it. Europeanness. Yes, that's right. Britishness. Mm -hmm. Englishness, even worse. Yeah. Here are the Americans, pure, noble, virtuous Republicans, lowercase r, mind you, and they're suffering. And through their suffering, they uh, they are in some form of apotheosis. Mm -hmm. Okay, is there a little truth in some of that? Yeah, but very little. These are these were both active field armies. So it's time, you know, and as a military historian and someone who teaches within the professional military educational system, who's served for a, 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 short, a short time as, as a, an armor and cavalry officer, I try to bring that eye to it and to understand the army as an active field army. Hence my um, choice to think of Valley Forge, the cantonment, the encampment, as FOB Valley Forge, because Washington's mounting these patrols. He's even got a screen line out there with Harry Lee and others. This is this stuff is redolent of modern warfare. And chatting about it with my students, they get it. It's like, oh yeah, I've seen that, sir. I I recognize that. He's doing the following. So it's 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 much more than the national myth that we've that many of us have grown up with. My guest today has been Rick Herrera. He's author of Feeding Washington's Army: Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. Rick, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Just a brief reminder: if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.